0: Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Space Junk Podcast. I know, I know you were wondering what the hell happened. Well, we've been gone for a while and, well, we missed each other. I missed Dustin, Dustin missed me, and we missed you both. and We both missed you. So we're back. I'm Tony Darnell. I run deepastronomy.com and my co-host is... Dustin Gibson from OPT Telescopes from his lovely home. Hi Dustin.
1: Hey man, I'm so glad to be doing this again. It has <laughs> been a long time. I'm not even sure I know how to do this anymore. Tell me about it. I just stumbled through that whole intro.
0: So, yeah, I've got a we got we're a little bit rusty. Yeah, a here little. At Deep a Astronomy
1: little. World Headquarters. So yeah. anyway, let me no, just it's give good you though it's good. I think we both we both kind of hit a point where we needed a break and we were just trying to figure out exactly what it should be. And that that break carried on way too long. And <laughs> I know you? you know you you were taking some time for your stuff. I, you know, I got super busy, and then it just ended up being we're looking at this, and it's like, man, how many months has it been? We let this slip, and uh, we can't do that because I miss these conversations. I got so many messages from people that were. Like, hey, you know, this is my way to kill time at work and you guys aren't doing it anymore. (laughs) How could I be? Well, we're always happy to contribute to you guys being less productive.
0: So uh, (laughs) let's I guess we'll go ahead and get started. It's good to be back. I feel I feel like this is normal again. I mean, it it was a time when, you know, if we weren't doing this, we don't really talk with each other that much. So this is fun to get back and uh, at least I get to see you once a week, which brings me to a couple of bookkeeping things. Let me just mention real quick. So I think we're going to do this once a week and I'm going to be publishing this. We record this on something called Zencaster, and they have completely redone this whole interface. What I used to do was record it, do the post-production on this thing, and download it and put it up on Spotify. I'm sorry, on Anchor, which then put it everywhere, uh, all the different podcasting platforms. Zencaster now does all that for me, so I'm just going to try and do it from Zencaster and to, it should go to all the syndicators out there, Spotify, iTunes, uh, Google podcasts, Amazon podcasts, there's all these different things now. So you should be able to find this. And I hope you can, if you, uh, if you could find some way to let us know that you're finding it on your, uh, or you can't find it on your podcast server. Um, the best way to do that actually is just to email me at, uh, space junk podcast at deep Let me know, that say, hey, man, I've been trying to find this, but I can't find it on my, my feeder, yeah. and I'll try to fix it for you. I'm also going to do this in both audio format and video format. We're, and we sometimes we might allude to something visual going on, in which case we'll try to describe it as best as we can. But, you know, the best thing to do is maybe try to get it on the various uh, – almost everybody's doing video podcasts now, I think, uh, but certainly Spotify and iTunes are. So Yeah, the video is way more intimidating too, right? You know? <laughs> I know, right? It's like I gotta get dressed. I gotta put on, you know, get out of my jammies. It's like, yeah, oh my, my God. dogs are gonna come
1: bursting through the door <laughs> in the middle of it. But that, hey, it works, man. That's it right. Works, that's so. right. Let's dig yeah. in. There's so many things that have changed since our last podcast, and uh, I feel like, like everything, all the stuff you see, you see a new space article every single day anymore. Yeah, you know, especially after Web, like Web is just producing this, um, you know, world changing content. Casually, on a daily basis. <laughs> Casually, right? Yeah, there yeah. has been a lot of James Webbery
0: going on yeah. since we last uh, since we last saw. Not the least of which, the thing launched. I mean, wow that that to me was you know uh, a huge event that happened just almost almost a year ago. It was Christmas uh, was it Christmas Eve or Christmas Day, something like that. It launched uh, yeah. from French <laughs> Guyana, and it's been up there ever since. We've got almost our first full year of web images um that have been just saturating uh everything because this is what we've all been waiting for but not only did it launch it deployed which is like even more amazing right. i mean talk about an a, you know an incredible origami feat they had to do to unload that thing or to unfold you know this 19 hexagonal mirrors that are all on their own little uh individual actuated uh, mounts that are Slammed onto the back of a big substrate, which then also folds up into a into a radio or a, a rocket capsule. I mean, a, a rocket tube. It's just crazy what they had to do to get that thing out. So my money was on a March launch. So I was wrong about that. I was happy to be wrong about that. But then I was like, oh, God, is this thing ever going to deploy and then get a million and a half miles away from Earth and start looking at stuff? Well, NASA did it. I mean, it all happened and it was beautiful that's
1: always the case though you always look back and you're like yeah nasa did it especially for how much flack they catch on a daily basis you know for for everything you know things going over budget or taking too long but you look at the things that have been accomplished i don't know have you seen the um the good night oppie uh documentary yet about opportunity and spirit on mars you know it's on, it's on my like, list i I gotta watch it yeah. on netflix yeah it's on my list i mean all of it is right on the edge especially at the time that these things are done they're usually planned before they're even possible with technology <laughs> you know they're started before it's even possible and then by the time the technology catches up it's like right at the edge of what's even possible to do but yeah i'm like you man i was nervous the whole time as you watch it go up there's like can this can it really go a million miles and then deploy such a complicated system deploy and then work perfectly. Like that's it's asking a lot for any one of those things to happen. I know but. it's like
0: between between landing on Mars or deploying this spaceship, it's like, can you imagine the meetings at NASA when they're planning these things out? You're like, okay, we're getting ready to launch a big space telescope out into space. We want it to do all this stuff. Ideas. And so <laughs> I go, Well. We could put it in. We could, like, launch a couple of uh, rockets, put some telescopes up there, uh, and then just turn them on. Yeah. And they kind of look around. Um, Any other ideas? (laughs) Stan, what about you? Well, how about we take this thing and we fold it up and we build it. We build 19 hexagonal things. We put it all together. We deploy. We have this thing fold up, and we put three different uh, infrared detectors on it. And then we send it a million and a half miles away. And we have to unfold the whole thing where we'll never be able to repair it again. Right. And they, all right, I think we're going to go with Stan's idea. Yeah, it's <laughs> a solid idea, Stan. That's cute. right. Good one, Stan. <laughs> we're going to do that. It's like they always pick the hardest thing to do. And yeah. uh, and so I uh, I, I just, I got, it was just nothing but kudos to NASA. It's incredible. I was definitely a naysayer coming into this. I was very skeptical. That the thing was skeptical. Going to you no, yeah. <laughs> I'm no. like this thing ain't gonna work. Like, right. But I should have learned, like you pointed out, with opportunity. Although, I th- yeah, I think it was um, it was perseverance in the and the uh, rover before that, where they had that seven
1: minutes of terror thing that they had. To yeah, well, opportunity all the was supposed to last ninety cranes. days and ended up lasting some crazy number, like fifteen years or something. And that <laughs> may not be the right number, but it's something like that. Yeah, it was a lot Yeah, it was a long
0: time, and yeah. so. So definitely I mean, you get your money's worth
1: out of NASA stuff? for sure. Yeah. I mean I, well, James I, I, Webb's already already done a lot, and like you said, it's only the first year, um, but it's, we're so fortunate to be alive at this time and witnessing all of these things. I mean, getting inching our way closer to all of the biggest questions that humans have ever asked. And these are the tools that are being cr- created specifically to drive toward those answers. And it's, it's incredible. It's, it's yeah. incredible to be alive now and witness these things happening. Yeah, I mean, you know, we've had 30
0: years of Hubble. Uh, we're supposed to yeah. get five, maybe ten. Uh, we had uh, well over ten years from Kepler. Again, supposed to get five. Uh, Tess is up there right now. Supposed to be up there for a couple years. Been extended a second time. So yeah. all of these missions tend to be uh, way more and run much longer than they're designed to do. So um, uh, the and, and the kind of science that comes out of them, of course, is perspective changing to say the least so i don't know i'm very i'm very uh pleased with how we with how things are going in the world of space telescopes for sure um and i just just to give you an idea of where we're at the most the latest thing i saw with web i mean i don't know there's just so much but for for one thing you've got to go to webtelescope.org and take a look at the image the the pillars of creation image they just released i mean We've all taken images of it with our telescopes, and and we, we you know that's sort of this iconic thing. We try to go, you know, I bet I could beat Hubble at this, but then here comes Webb, and it does it, and it's just, I've never it's the color table they use. I mean, it's like just it's stunning, it's, beautiful, it's unreal. Yeah, uh, it's... I don't know, man. It's just you got to check it. out. go to webtelescopes.org check it out. But the thing I think that I'm most excited about when it comes to Webb, the webbery that is being produced is it's finally starting to do some serious exoplanet stuff mm-hmm. just this week. They put out a, a press release that said, well, we looked at wasp 30, 39, a 39 B I think it was. And we found, we looked at its atmosphere and we saw all this, these molecules and all these things. That's what it was designed to do. We're not only just detecting dips in brightness anymore of a planet as it passes in front of its star, right? And we are looking at seeing, first of all, The planet itself, we can, web can see the planet itself. Then it can measure using near spec if it's got an atmosphere. And if it does have an atmosphere, what's in it? And it's going to, it's absolutely going to help get us closer to finding out about the prospect of life in the universe. And that's just started. I mean, that's going, I mean, they don't get me started on the first galaxies and all that stuff. That's also being done. (laughs) But to me, that's the most exciting part is what web is doing right now so they just came out with this press release on wasp 39b and uh they found it's got carbon dioxide in the atmosphere and a few other molecules and uh it's a saturn-like planet that's orbiting in between the orbit of mercury so it probably doesn't have life you know it's close to its star so it's probably going around the star once wasp 39 every few hours or a couple of days but it's you know, it's probably not going to have life on it, but they are using this to test the atmosphere of this
1: planet. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of cool. Yeah. And those, those first images of the, the, uh, the original image, I think it was the very first image with all the galaxies, you know, that's, that's the oldest image taken, right? Like that would be the oldest galaxies we have that much resolution on. Is that correct? You mean from, from the ones that web released? Yeah. Yeah. These were the very first galaxies ever. And so how many of those are ghosts now? Like how much, how much of that, that we're seeing is actually still, you know, if, even if it's just, you know, the math of what, it, of the likelihood, I mean, galaxies don't last forever. How many of them would likely be gone at this point? Yeah. Uh, well, we're that's still seeing a- their light now, but they might, I mean, they could be gone.
0: Yeah. You're looking at, I think you're looking at galaxies that are a few hundred, million up to a billion years after the Big Bang. And these these galaxies themselves are very misshapen. They're very blobby looking. They're not very well defined. So that's one of the characteristics of these very first galaxies. So almost certainly in the 13 or so billion years since those were taken, the, not only are they not there, but they they're are, you know, probably yeah. been merged several times over with other galaxies. Um, right. Or maybe even stripped apart entirely. Uh, all the star of birth in them and stuff like that is gone. So yeah, that's yeah.
1: that's the thing that always blows my mind with these really, really, really deep space images, is that you're never seeing reality as it exists today. And a lot of times you're seeing ghosts. Like you're mm-hmm. you're capturing ghosts in high resolution. Yeah, I mean, a, a famous example of that amateurs like to talk
0: about, amateur astronomers, is Betelgeuse. Right? I mean, Betelgeuse might not be there right now. Right. Uh, it could already be dead. So it could already have blown mm-hmm. up. We just don't know it yet, and that's true. Yeah, it's behaving very strangely. Right, which it had been doing. How far away is Betelgeuse? I have to look it up. But however many light years it is from here, uh, that's that's when it was first behaving strangely, and we're just now finding out about it.
1: Um, and that's the so- big red star in uh, the Orion constellation, opposite Rigel, the blue one. So, op- you know, just on the sides, just on. The top and bottom of Orion's belt, you can find those too. But it's very obvious. The big red star in Orion is Betelgeuse. And uh, yeah, I mean, it changed its brightness drastically two years ago. And it was a big, big deal to everybody. Everybody was talking about it.
0: Yeah. And I think what they found out about that was that it was uh, some gas and and it it had had erupted some outer layers of its own atmosphere. And they think that it might have been that that was obscuring. Mm The delight, uh, six hundred forty-two light years away. I had to look it up because there you go. Why keep that crap in your head when you can just use it? Use it's a Uber. short,
1: short <laughs> Uber ride. Only six hundred forty-two light years. It's Nothing. That's right. That's right. Leave a good tip though.
0: Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's uh, so six hundred fifty. So some odd years ago, Beetlejuice could have blown blown up. Um, right. It's that imminent the supernova that it's that it's going to die as a result of is uh, imminent, and and that. That could mean plus or minus several thousand years, but um, in Star Talk, that is. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's uh, it's been behaving weirdly. It's in, definitely in a later stage of its life, uh, but that's an example of something that has a good chance of not being there right now. But we don't know it, and we won't know it for another six hundred some odd years. So,
1: yeah, you know, I was doing a talk speak. at um, at my old high school. Actually, I got invited to come speak to the students there. Okay, and when I was talking to students, we, we talked briefly about this, about that, uh, that James Webb image. And one of the students asked, is it real then? Talking about the image. You know, as we were saying, you know, this is what it looked like this far in the past. And the question is, is it real then? And normally, you know, I'm always defensive about that because everybody thinks everyone's space images are fake. They think they're all made in Photoshop. You know, and or we're just drawing them and trying to fool everybody because the earth is flat, right? right? Right. So I'm always very defensive when that comes up. But I had to catch myself and say, wow, that's a that's a really interesting question because we've captured something that absolutely is reality. We know that this light is coming in in this pattern right now. This is exactly what we can see. We can see it and document it in high resolution. It's observable and repeatable. We can do it over and over again. Right. But is this what's there? The chance of that actually being what's still there is almost zero. So is it real? Are we seeing what's really there? The answer has to be no. What? Why would you say that? Because what what they're saying is like, is this because when we look at places where we take a picture of something, if we take a picture of you know, the Eiffel Tower, and we're saying this place, is it real, we can go to this place. And generally, when we're documenting something with photography, we can see like, this is real. I'm not saying that the stuff that existed there was never real. I'm saying that what exists in the photograph only existed at a time that we did not, it no longer exists that way. And so what is in this image, if we could go to this place, would not be there in this way.
0: Hmm, but that argument works for everything. I mean, even it does. The, it does. Even, yeah, in, on a smaller even when time. When I look scale. at the the cup here on my desk, it's not <laughs> real in the sense that I've seen this a few, you know, nanoseconds in the past. Um, so, no, it's not. Yeah. as it I, was. I guess it's
1: just it's just really ex- it's a really exaggerated perspective because you're right. Like the sun is obviously like it's it's eight minutes old real when we right. see it, right? Mm-hmm. But. It's a really exaggerated perspective of the same thing. That same truth that we're describing is exaggerated to the point where what we're describing now doesn't even exist the way that we're documenting it anymore. That's for true. That's
0: true. Certainly Beetlejuice doesn't exist the way we're seeing it now. Uh, And we have, because space is so big and light can only travel so fast. We have, we're looking at this in, in a time capsule. This is as if, we had opened up a time capsule that was planted 650 yeah. years ago and looked inside yeah. and we're seeing what's in it from 650 years ago. Uh, that's true, but it's still real. And it's still, uh-huh. uh, it, 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 it has since evolved. But I think this, yeah. uh, this, now you're getting into a question of, well, what is, what is real? If we're looking yeah, at, <laughs> if, if what's real is only what I'm seeing and what I'm experiencing at the time, uh, then really no one is experiencing reality as it is right now. No one is. They can't. Uh, it, there's always going to be some kind of a delay or buffer between that. So then you got to ask us, well, what am I in right now? Is this reality and is this all it is? And if if all reality is is the input to our senses – and that can be gained. That system can be gained by lots. We can be fooled by a lot sure. of different things. And that can get us into sure. and simulation and all kinds of other stuff. But but um, that's what you're asking. Is, that, is the nature of my reality such that what I'm looking at and experiencing a true manifestation of what's going on right now? The answer is absolutely not.
1: Right. A well, that's, that's what I think was interesting. I mean, obviously, these are, these are things that you can know academically, when you when you start to go a little bit deeper, and you see something, you know, like a photo, a photo of, of this object, and you're explaining it to somebody in high school. And then they ask you a very basic question, like, if this isn't there, then is this real? And if the answer is yes, it's real, then the, the other question is, well, it's not there, what is it? And the only answer you can come up with is the past. Yeah. You're, you, what you're seeing is truly a picture of the past. Yeah. And while that's always true, it's never this exaggerated. This is the most exaggerated picture of the past humans have ever seen.
0: That's that's a good point. And not only can we not experience the future, it could be argued we're not really experiencing the present by what we just been talking about. What we're really living in is almost exclusively is what's already happened, the past. Yeah. And so that could yeah, be yeah. an easy argument could be made that that's what we're, we're sort of reacting to things that have already happened a microsecond yeah. later or whatever. Right. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, it's like, it's like latency gone wild. If you're a gamer, right. It's like, Oh my God, that's too much, too much buffering. But yeah, it's uh, yeah, reality space- is
1: wildly uncomfortable. <laughs>
0: All the time. I I have been, I have, I've basically lived my life that way. It's like, what's going on? Help me. (laughs)
1: Yeah. 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 Want to be uncomfortable all the time? Start looking through a telescope.
0: (laughs) Yeah, that's right. That's exactly right. That's the way to do it. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, these are all good questions. What I don't get though, is why everybody gets so pissed off about space images, you know, especially when you talk about things from Hubble or any, any space image, really from any telescope. There's always somebody in the crowd that's gonna look at that and go, well, that's fake. That's that's not the, that's a false color. It's like when you tell them that you've applied a color table to an image to make, to bring out certain details over others, it's just they discount it. Well, it's not the real thing. But if you show them the real thing, what's the
1: reaction gonna be? What a piece of shit. I mean, that looks like that it's looks like so, crap. Yeah. yeah, it's so hard to believe though i understand where people are coming from and i understand why they get defensive um the technology has gotten so good so fast well maybe i can try to explain let me give you let me give you a different perspective you know i actually i actually just did my first uh ted talk with tedx nashville i did a tedx nashville talk in um august it's supposed to be posted it could be posted i mean maybe it was posted today i don't know but it's gonna get posted on youtube soon to their uh, TEDx channel. But it was about this. It was about, um, you know, astronomy, how far astrophotography specifically has come and how we live in this time. And it's really not very old, as you know, Tony, because you've been on both sides of it professionally. Um, That what is possible today, especially with these new, very high frame rate, very high resolution CMOS cameras, wasn't necessarily possible for professionals 15 years ago, certainly not amateurs, even five years ago. And at the price point, it's just like, it, I mean, it's come down, the prices have come down so much and the quality's gone up so much that it's almost like a brand new thing. I mean, it's accessible to everybody. People are taking images like A-pods with systems that you know are cheaper than some cell phones. And um, it's just this, This brand new hobby almost where people are taking these images that are hard to believe. Look at gazing outwards, for instance. If you haven't looked at Alex Hawkinson's, Tony, take a look at gazing outwards. He's using, which uh, here's a shameless plug right here because it's one of the things I'm most proud of in the world. But we released our second radian telescope called the radian 75. And it's it's an APO, but it also has the reducer flattener built in. So it's Petzval. And, um, man, so like no calculating back focus or any of that stuff. And it's all black. So you can tell, like I designed it cause it's just black on black on black. <laughs> <laughs> Monochrome Dustin. That's what we call you. Yeah, I love it. I love that look on these systems though. Just clean, mean telescopes. But anyway, you can look at gazing outwards and see the images he's been taking with this. This is a 75 millimeter telescope. Using he's using a ZWO 6200 camera off the shelf, right? I mean, these are not systems that are custom made or anything like that. And look at the images and tell me that's not hard to believe for a refractor that's smaller than four inches. You know, these are world-class images. And people are ripping them out every single day. And, and he's not the only one. It's a lot of people. Look at Brave Falls, for example. You know, these people are taking APODs all the time with systems that honestly would have been never, they would have never even been considered for world-class images, you know, five, much less 10 years ago. And so what, and how does that go with the uh,
0: reaction of people getting upset though, about space images? Well,
1: I mean, I guess what I'm getting at, the point is that it look it's hard to believe. It's that when someone says, Hey, I'm doing this from my backyard What's implied is that it's not a professional observatory. It's not a $400,000 system. This is an affordable hobby that I do for my backyard, which is true. But when you, when you take that and you stack it with the quality of image that is then produced, it's hard to connect those two dots. It's hard to think that this wasn't produced by NASA or that this wasn't a you know, $400,000, $500,000 telescope system that did this. It's hard to believe when they say, oh, yeah, this was a $4,000 complete package that took this image you know it's um it's just hard to believe that it's even possible if it's not something it's not hard for people that like like us that do it every day that you know watch the images come in but it's hard when you've never been exposed to this stuff to see it and say oh yeah that's that's a nebula that's the orion nebula those are baby stars like this is a stellar nursery in high resolution high resolution than you know the picture <laughs> i took of my kids at the park yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. that's hard to believe, man. You don't see where people come from with that. Well, I just I don't I don't get the what I guess I'm getting at is I don't
0: get the anger that people come up with about how, well, this can't be, you know, this can't be real. This is this is, you know, all made up. This is Photoshop. And uh, the these, these colors aren't what the thing really looks like. If I look at it through a telescope and and, you know, it's just there's a lot of it seems like discord about this whole topic whenever you show somebody a super beautiful image especially one that is very vibrant in their colors and very um maybe not representative of how it would look like in a to a human eye which basically is just going to see things in grayscale on most uh, eyepiece views and so um i don't know i guess i guess that's what i was getting at but to your point with these telescopes like the 70 like the 75 millimeter here that this radian 75 um this is something that is new and i got a couple questions. So I'm yep. looking at, I, I've been looking at the website, not only for the 61 and, and the 75, but also these other, there's other brands of so-called astrographs, which is what you're calling this telescope. Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk about what an astrograph is. Because sure. it sounds fancy. What is yep. it?
1: Man, I very, very rarely get to be on the side of any conversation where I can correct you. So why don't you tell me what it is so that I can say, no, Tony, you're wrong. This is what it is. An astrograph, as I've always
0: understood the term, is a telescope that is designed to take images of astronomical objects, but not do astronomy. In other words, they are configured in a way that have they have optical elements and in your this case a, a, a field flattener all of this stuff built in to the optical tube that really only makes it good for taking images
1: it's not necessarily uh, you're, no verbal, fun, suited. You're, no fun. you're no fun at all but i think we can i think we can be a little more clear but I, that answer is not what i wanted i wanted you to be way off so i could you know
0: oh correct you. Well, what did you what did you? <laughs>
1: Well, yeah, so that's exactly right, man. I mean, it's, it's telescopes that are designed from the ground up specifically for imaging. And when you look at designing telescopes, I mean, cost, you know, cost being separated from this, because obviously that's something you have to consider um, when you're designing something, you can't make it outside of everybody's budget where nobody can ever afford it. So you start looking at that as part of it, but outside of that the one of the first things you look at is color correction when you, when it comes to refractors especially because they can suffer severely from something called chromatic aberration which is um you know where the colors do not come to focus together and so generally with three colors it takes three lenses to bring all three to focus with two a doublet you can focus two colors but then blue specifically like violet is it comes to focus later and so what happens you get color fringing on the images of any bright object like if you look at the moon the moon will look perfect except the purple will have a halo around the moon because it's coming to focus in another area um so with three lenses you can correct, correct three colors now that's it with once you do that that's called an apo an apochromat, apochromatic telescope and um you know it's perfectly color corrected the problem is It's not flattened for a flat sensor. So it's not coming to focus perfectly across a flat sensor. So it takes another lens or set of lenses beyond that to correct that. For the human eye, an Apo is perfect. You're good to go. That's designed specifically for the human eye. You don't want to add any elements. You don't have to. You don't want any reflections inside the telescope. You don't want to correct for a flat eyeball because that's not what an eyeball is. But once you take a sensor that's flat instead, you have to add additional elements called flatteners or flattener reducers, which bring the focal length back, and make the scope faster. And once you do that, now it's not as optimized for the human eye, but it's optimized for a flat camera uh, sensor surface And will you know, give you a a clean image across the entire surface of that flat sensor. So what it is, is people, you know, when we build these telescopes from the ground up, knowing that they're going to be designed specifically for astrophotography, all of that stuff is built into them. And it's part of the package instead of it being optimized for the human eye.
0: What would happen if you put an eyepiece on the back of this thing?
1: It would still work. It's just like when you put a camera sensor on the back of one without a flattener. It will still work. It's just not optimized for it.
0: So you can it's, still use these telescopes. Yeah, visually absolutely. If you want. And yeah. what would you say would be the biggest detractor from doing that? Like like uh, if, I, if I had uh, one of these and I put an eyepiece on it, what would I notice that I might not like as a visual observer?
1: Uh, not much. I mean, you're still going to get 90% of the quality either way. Right. Even if you put a sensor on a telescope without a flattener reducer, it's still going to be sharp in the center. It's still going to look great in the center. But the further you get away from center, the more you're going to start to see issues. And it's the same kind of thing if you're putting flatteners on telescopes you're using visually. They're still going to look amazing. You're going to still get 90% of that quality. It's just not optimized for the human eye and could be better without so many lenses for one thing. You only want three if you can only have three. And then, um, you know, not having something that's flattening the image when it's not needed. So, you know, because it's already going to be flat to the human eye. In most cases, if the, if the telescope is designed well, you're not going to have spherical aberration and, and all these other issues in the corners. It's going to be, you know, like, like what you've looked through, Takahashi or, right. um, you know, uh, Sharp Star. These scopes are so great out of the box that it's just perfect. So why add things that can only detract from the image? So it's really better to either have the scope design specific for visual or design specific for imaging because you don't want to attach elements later that then may be out of collimation to the others. They're not in perfect alignment with the others and they're moving. If I put a reducer or a reducer flattener on a telescope that's just a triplet, now I have this element that goes after the focuser that has to move. The likelihood of that being perfect all the way through its path, And then having its back focus perfect after focus and the the back focus of the camera after it perfect is very low unless the person really knows what they're doing. If all of that stuff is tucked inside the telescope tube and then the focuser, you know now there's no moving elements at all. Everything remains in perfect collimation all the time. It eliminates the possibility of there being any error because now wherever the telescope comes to, to focus is the exact perfect back focus. Yeah. It just simplifies the the whole process.
0: So, as a visual telescope, it sounds to me like what you're saying is, I'm, you're basically overbuying. You're spending money on something yeah. that your not eyeballs not gonna, you're not going to use. So you may as well, you know, you may as well get something yep. like this designed for it. Here, the value is all of that, all of the things you just said. All of the elements are in the tube, right? You built for it's built specifically for you hanging a camera on the back of it. One other yeah. one other question I have though is I'm looking at the diagram. I'm gonna put this up on the video part. I'm looking at the sure, diagram sure. of this on your website. And on the back of it, there are three things called M76, M54, and M forty eight. These are are these rings? Are these focusing rings?
1: Those you know are what? adapters that go down to different um different attachment sizes. So like oh, if you they're have adapters. A- yeah, a full frame a full frame camera to prevent vignetting, you want to have a throughput that's bigger than the sensor, right? So you would use M fifty four. If it's um, smaller than that, you might go to M forty eight or M forty two, which is just right. a smaller circle size image circle. Wow, the image plane on this thing must be massive. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So, so this this can support a full frame sensor, which was the standard we were building against. To um, you know, like right out to the edges, it's near. It's near perfect, way past where the 61 stops. At 75 millimeters, it's, it's near impossible to get a perfect all the way out to the edges, but it's about as close as, as you can get. I mean, it's a, it's a great scope, and you'll see some aberrations in the furthest corners if you're using a huge full-frame sensor, but that's it. I mean, it's more than good enough to do like mosaics and combine them without any issues. Wow,
0: what kind of coatings does it have?
1: Uh, this one actually. So, on the last one, it was one that it was one of the things that people requested over and over again that we uh, get into. And really, as part of the marketing, when uh, Trevor Jones and I were sitting down and talking about it, we we're like, we don't want this to be brand. We want everyone to get into the hobby. We don't want this to be another spec sheet as the marketing. So, we didn't list any of that. And people got pretty upset by us not listing it. So, this time we listed it. It's FCD 100 glass, which, as you know, is mm-hmm. about as high end as it gets for. A uh, an imaging telescope. Cool.
0: Yeah, I, I'm, I like to look at the specs. I'm a spec guy too. So
1: yeah, you know uh, a lot of a lot of people are. We just really wanted the images to speak for themselves, and they did. I mean, the the Radiant 61 was the best selling, uh, you know, imaging telescope we've ever released ever. Um, <laughs> and then this one is right there with it. So you know, it's in uh, this one. Honestly, after using this one, I felt I felt like I messed up on the 61. <laughs> You know, I I, I still love, I still love the 61, but, um, you know, it just wasn't the, the corners on the full frame. For one thing, it was a triplet, like we were talking about, which a triplet, the, the way to think about it, a triplet is a visual scope that with the right accessories can do great imaging, but it's a visual scope. The, um, these astrographs are imaging scopes that with adapters can do great visual, but it's still an imaging scope at its core. And so what we should have done with the 65, just it was the very first telescope we built. um, And we didn't build it with exclusivity. So it actually got released some of the parts. I mean, not all of the parts, but some of the parts got released before we even released ours with all the custom parts we made because we didn't buy exclusivity on, um, on the the optical design, but the things we changed actually made the telescope much, much more robust and, you know, better suited for imaging, eliminating flexure and those sort of things. Um, and there were there were some other, you know, obviously other changes. But on the 75, the 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 biggest thing is that it was designed from the ground up, taking all of the things that people loved about the 61 and then everything that people sent us, they've sent us messages. And I love that our, you know, our customer base is very honest. If they don't like something, they're quick to tell you. And uh, we took those things to heart and just changed them. And that's that's how this one was produced. And that's why it's a Petzful. People didn't want to calculate back focus. And I don't blame them. Yeah,
0: yeah. And that's what that's what this does. I mean, it's the it's the three it's a triplet with that feel flattener in there, that makes it a Petzful, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. So it's yeah. yeah, exactly. The optical design has more than three elements, which allows, you know, you know, it's all tucked before the focuser, which is the key. So it's flattened before the focuser so that when you put a camera on there, all that has to happen is the camera moves in and out until it reaches focus and it's going to be perfectly flat across the whole sensor.
0: Are you still selling 61 or are you, are you just going to do this one now?
1: No, right now we don't have them and stuff takes so long, honestly, since COVID. You know, manufacturing's just changed. The whole world has changed. Things yeah. take so long to get that we had to p- pick a design for production. And so we went with our upgrade. So right now, the only one in production is the 75. And then we have another one that we're working on that we haven't released yet. But um, the 75 is going to be the one for this year. Okay. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's exciting, man. I mean, it, they haven't even shipped yet. The first ones. Are the first round will be shipping January, um, but those are those are just about. I mean, it's just about sold. We've got a handful left that um, for a pre-order that our people are going to get for the first round of them. Okay, yeah, and, you're you know, right. The, man. the Christmas crowds are are pretty big, so there will be a lot of people ordering these things for family for you know January deliveries uh, okay. for Christmas presents. <laughs>
0: Yeah, man, I, I wouldn't mind seeing one of these in my tree. Uh, well, the you're right though. I mean, I'm looking at these images that are on the website, and I'll I'll, I'll put these up also on the video version of this this podcast. You know, uh, Alex uh, Hawkinson, I guess his name is. Uh, man, he's killing yeah. it with these images. Yeah, he's uh, gazing
1: outwards on um, on Instagram and Twitter and everything. He has a pretty big following, but uh, he's done the vast majority of the testing. Trevor Jones did some testing with it. Um, you know, as he he put out a video that he used it with. He did a horse head shot it was incredible with it. Um, you know, we have our friends Galactic Hunter did some testing with it, mm-hmm. and I have one here as well. It's, um, I mean, it's by far the best scope we've ever produced. There's no question. It's yeah. Well, but judged by the images I'm looking at,
0: I can I can definitely believe that. The, That's the know, goal, if, right?
1: Keep improving on it. Find the things that work, and and then improve the things that feel like can be better. And this is definitely a step that direction. So if we reached a point, I mean, I'm looking at this image
0: of, of a Andromeda galaxy that he took. And, um, you know, I've seen this a billion times. Everybody's seen the Andromeda galaxy a billion times. And, and it seems like what's improving with every iteration or every generation of telescope hardware is that we are approaching the limits on the ground that we had been enjoying in space for quite some time. When are we going to reach, do you think, the limit to the atmosphere? Are we already there? Like, when is it going to be a limiting factor of our location and not the equipment we're using?
1: I would have I would have said yes with CCD. And, you know, I'm kind of having to eat my words a little bit because... Probably, you know, anybody that's been listening to this podcast for a while is going to be like, you You said CCD was better. And for a long time, it was true. I loved CCD and still, I still love CCD. So I'm not going back on that. I still have a 16803 that I use even now. Um, but people are taking these, these images on long focal length scopes with tiny, I mean, 3 micron pixel cameras, like the QHY600 or the ZWO6200 we're talking about like 60 megapixels, which is extreme oversampling, which you would think would just be highlighting atmospheric disturbance at that point. But, you know, through through processing, the detail that comes out of these images is just absolutely unreal. And it, it proves me wrong. It proved what I used to say wrong, that there was no point and putting a camera with such small pixels on long focal length. And so really what's happened is people have started using these high resolution cameras on just about every focal length, everything from things like the Radiant 75 or these small refractors all the way up to, I've seen people put them on 4,000 millimeters and above five, 6,000 millimeter telescopes, like 24 inch plane waves. In fact, Gazing Outwards has images on his Instagram from a ZWO 6200 on a 24 inch plane wave. And you can see the difference. But on paper, we would have both argued, Tony, that it just made no sense. But when you see the images that actually come from it, no, I don't think I don't think we're at the limit. I honestly, I would argue we're probably nowhere close just based on what we're seeing now with uh the cameras that even exist today. And camera technology seems to get it it gets better faster than than anything else I've witnessed.
0: Yeah, I mean I'm sitting here looking at this, and I, I could easily imagine that I'm seeing this. Uh, as something released from a space telescope. I mean, with true in terms of the level of detail of the dark lanes, I mean, before the best I could ever hope for back when I was doing this stuff was a fuzzy patch. uh, Exactly. That that was the core of the Andromeda galaxy. Now there's all of these, these uh, spiral details that one can see in, in the images. And if you're not seeing them out of the, out of the box, then, you know, you're doing, it's just, I don't think you could, I don't even think you could screw it up. I mean, even if it was out of focus, even if you were pointing badly and didn't track well, you could still see with the, uh, with the optical quality and the cameras that are out there, these level of detail. And so.
1: That's that's the thing is like, you say the fuzzy patch, that's if you got everything right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: The focus in particular. Yeah.
1: Yeah, but looking at these images now, I mean, if you're looking at the page, you see what I'm talking about. I mean, those are four and five thousand millimeters of focal length. You would have never ever suggested somebody put three micron, micron pixels on five thousand millimeters of focal length. Yeah, you know, but here it is. This is the yeah. proof, right? How do you argue with it? Yeah,
0: and what uh, what kind of exposure times are we get? Are you using with these like Radiant seventy five images? It's um, all really short, like five minutes, ten minutes yeah. at most. And that's so even that's, with narrowband. So tell me if this is a, tr- if a true statement. The money you spend on an optical system like this can be offset in the form of shorter focal lengths. I'm sorry, shorter exposure times. And you could save some money perhaps on mounts. So yeah. you don't need the world's rock solidest, most amazing tracking mount if you have an optical telescope with a camera like this on top of it say a mediocre mount, you can still yeah, get true. amazing results, right?
1: It's true. And you can buy smaller amounts because what most people are doing anymore, you still see a lot of people buying the big systems. I still use a 17, but I also use a small Teleview refractor that I absolutely love. Um, and it's hard to see the difference. Like a lot of times people shoot wide because they have so much resolution. I mean, think about it this way. My images from the plane wave are with a CCD camera that's 16 megapixels. This camera we're talking about, the QHY600, ZWO6200, or, you know, Attic makes one. There's there's a bunch of people making it with this 455 chip. Um, This, you know, is 62 megapixels compared to 16 megapixels. What if you just shot half? What if you cropped out half your image and zoomed it in that much? It's like, okay, well, you're still at 30 megapixels. You could do that again, you could take a quarter of the image zoom into only a quarter of the image and still hold the resolution of what mine does, you know, at 16 megapixels and that's what people are doing they're shooting wide and cropping in on the small targets and getting phenomenal images it's not going to give you the exact resolution that the bigger systems do with the better aperture longer focal length, Um, but. You get a lot of the benefits that you're describing, like not having to have a mount with a capacity of over a hundred pounds and, yeah. you know, not having to have their tracking be so precise with your guiding being sub arc second, all those things. It's like, you can go with these mounts that are very, very inexpensive, um, you know, under a thousand dollars, go with a really wide angle telescope and then crop in on the images. And that's what a lot of people are starting to do because it's so much less expensive.
0: Well, to me, that's where the value of these astrographs are, right? They're small, yeah, yeah, yeah. lightweight, uh, uh, and easy to carry and, uh, are very forgiving in tracking because you can get by with shorter exposures, uh, as well. So all of these things combined, I think make it, right. make it the value that say, maybe buying a, I don't know, a paramount mount or something huge and, and, you know, multi thousands of dollars. Uh, if you can get away from not purchasing something like that, I think it's a, it's a smart value as well. So, um, right. Optical systems, man. I just can't believe how. I mean, I'm, I keep thinking back of the 60 millimeter Pentax refractors I used to look back into in the 70s and 80s, and there's just like a whole different
1: world out there now. So, um, but you know, yeah. go ahead. I was going to say, man, the, the world has just changed and continues to change so much. It's it's um it's really eye opening, and you know, I, I live this stuff every day. But like I told you, man, with the the TED Talk in August. Um, You know, working through that talk and actually forcing myself to sit down and, and like look at the facts of what has changed and be ready to present those. And then the feedback I got from people afterward, you know, those those talks are huge, man. There was um, like thousands of people just at the event, Um, you know, and so like afterwards listening to people talk about, the images and and their experiences in the hobby. And a lot of them had done telescopes in the past, but had no idea this was possible. And there were a lot of repeating themes like that. And I think that that probably extends well past Nashville's Symphony Orchestra Hall, right? (laughs) And goes to the broader world where that's kind of the story is that people have done this at some point or many people have, and they have no idea that the hobby is not even remotely close to the hobby they enjoyed many years ago. It's something now that has, these new opportunities because of this technology, the stuff we're describing now that um, it's just opened doors that never were even imaginable not long ago.
0: Yeah. You know, as we were having this conversation over the course of this podcast, one thing did occur to me that may give me sympathy for those who get so angry about the fakeness of a space image. And that would be something that I would be concerned about in the modern time, which has to do with algorithms and algorithmic processes. At what point are the images coming off of a camera being manipulated such that data are being added or taken out in a misleading or a misinterpreting way? Now you've got an argument that I might listen to because that's that's possible. We see it all the time with deepfakes and human beings. So so if we were to you know add to the data that's coming off of this CCD in a way that is misrepresenting i think i think those people have a point at that point but that's not what's happening with most images now now they're being processed in the with the data that are there the data that's thrown away actually it's not even data it's noise the things like dark you know thermal noise uh, uh gradient gradient of artifacts things like that hot yeah. pixels yeah. that's being thrown away but the integrity of the data and certainly the the uh representative nature of that data hasn't been fundamentally altered by just scaling it or adding up color table to it. Maybe it is false color, but that all that means is just so you could see this dust lane, whereas we didn't put it there, you couldn't see it. Um, but you're not inventing anything. Now no. I think you've got a point. If, if an algorithm is looking at an image and saying, you know what? The star is actually brighter than the surrounding you know, galaxy. I'm going to go ahead and make it that way. Um, then, that's misrepresented.
1: Yeah, we're just watching the technology evolve. We're not we're not creating new vision. You know, it's it's it started with the the you know the glasses, then the contacts, and now we're at LASIK. Right? We're just we're we're teaching ourselves to see. This technology is teaching us to see what's there clearly, not to create something from nothing.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, I don't know, Dustin. Have we got an episode here?
1: Yeah, I think so, man. This is yeah. fun. It's so good talking to you again, and uh, we absolutely won't let <laughs> won't let the months go by. We get so overwhelmed with everything going on, man. We can't do that.
0: Yeah, I agree, and I'm glad to be back creating content with you again and and talking about stuff. We're gonna we're gonna try and mix this uh, podcast up. We'll probably get it. We did it a little bit today, but we'll probably do it more in future episodes. Talk a little bit about some philosophical issues in addition to astronomy and telescopes. We hope you'll stick with us. I think I'm gonna post these. I don't know, maybe Friday. Does that sound like a good day to post? I'm making this up. Yeah, yeah. I think,
1: um, I think that's exactly it. Let's keep it all off the cuff. Let's just have our conversations, the ones that we would have otherwise anyway. Let's talk yeah. the stuff that we care about, man, the astronomy, things that um, that I love honestly learning from you about every time we talk, um, the things that are going in space news, obviously, and then um, telescopes, the amateur side of it. Let's talk about the telescopes and everything that um, that I obsess over, the cameras and astrophotography in general, and it always leads to philosophy, so that's a given.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It's hard. To, it's hard to look up and not wonder. So follow us. Uh, so I, there's a deep astronomy Discord channel. Join it. I'll put the I'll put an invite in the description box of these of these podcasts. Um, I might post this on uh, YouTube, but for sure it's going out on all of the uh, on all of the podcast uh, uh, aggregators. And send us an email, uh, Space Junk Podcast at Deep Tell us what you want to hear about. Uh, also yeah. do it on the discord server and we will respond. I've got something, I've got something in the queue for next week from uncle B. Uncle Bill wants to talk about some stuff. So I'm going to put that in next episode. Awesome. And yeah, give us participate. Also, if you want to come on here and yell at Dustin for being wrong, I'll support you in that. So, you know, come on in and we'll interview you about how wrong Dustin is.
1: Sounds great. looking forward to it. Sounds
0: great. Thanks. Alright, alright. On behalf of Dustin Gibson, I'm Tony Darnell. I promise I'll be over this cold soon. Thank you all so much for listening, slash, watching, and as always, keep looking up.